This is session 21 of A Better Brand of Happiness, and this session begins studying the paragraph that is Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. I encourage you to turn there in your Bibles and follow along as I read this paragraph of Scripture. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, flawless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This section of scripture is obviously quite a lengthy paragraph, and if I were to, um, which I will, break it down into a big idea, I would um, say that the implied question in this passage, which is, as you know, the first Thing that I look for when I'm trying to find the big idea for a paragraph, I would say the implied question is, how do believers rejoice in the Lord? Now I say that, of course, because the first words out of Paul's mouth, so to speak, out of his pen, so to speak, um, in verse 1 of chapter 3 is, further my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. But that's not the only reason. If you um, look deeply enough in this passage you can see that there is a strong contrast set up between confidence in the flesh and confidence in Christ. And confidence in Christ is another way of talking about rejoicing in the Lord. So Paul, when he says rejoice in the Lord, both in this text and in the others in Philippians, is not just throwing out a Christian platitude. He's not just saying like, like today the biggest Christian platitude I think is blessed, you know. Blessings to you. I'm blessed when someone asks how I'm doing. People, in fact, non-Christians I hear doing this too, or people that I I don't think are Christians or know to be Christians. 
use this word blessed to describe themselves. And there's nothing wrong with it, except that if you, I, I wonder if you asked them what they meant, if they could give you a clear answer, okay? We have, um, in our way of speaking as Christians, we have certain phrases and um, statements that we use that we almost use unthinkingly. They become like cliches, okay? And rejoice in the Lord, especially since Paul uses it so much in this, ch- in this book, might be considered to be one of those cliches, but it's not. It's central to what everything that Paul is trying to write and teach the Philippians in this book. And in this chapter, he wants to go into some detail into what he means by that. And so um, I find in this paragraph Paul's explanation of what it is to rejoice in the Lord and more specifically how believers do it. He's been saying rejoice in the Lord. Now he's going to describe what that means and how we actually go about it. All right, and so the implied question in this passage is, how do believers rejoice in the Lord? And the answer that's given in the passage to that question, I would say by putting no confidence in our own human efforts. Once we stop putting confidence in our human efforts and put our confidence only in Christ, put our joy only in Christ, then we've truly learned what it means to rejoice in the Lord in the sense that Paul is using here. All right, and so if I distill those answers down into a one-sentence summary, which is what the big idea is, My big idea statement would be, and is, believers should rejoice in the Lord instead of putting our confidence in our own human efforts. A one-sentence summary of this paragraph of Scripture, Philippians 3, 1 through 14, is believers should rejoice in the Lord instead of putting our confidence in our own human efforts. Now let me break this down, and let's look at what uh, what it's saying together. The first uh, part of this big idea, the first section of this paragraph, is of course, um, starts in verse 1. It goes, in my opinion, from verses 1 through 3. And it's a repeat of Paul's command to rejoice in the Lord. He says that right at the beginning. He says, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Now, in our NIV, the first word is further. In other translations, including the ESV, the uh, first word you might see is actually finally, and um, Paul's going to use the word finally again later on in the book. And so he might be using it in the sense of, if I was talking about subpoints, if I said, I have three points to, to talk about this morning, and in the first point I would say, my first point is this, and then I have three subpoints, I might say when I got to the third subpoint, finally, and I don't mean finally, this is my final point, I mean it's my final subpoint. My pastor growing up used to do this all the time. It's a, it's a complete head fake because you would say finally, and he meant finally for this one point, not for the whole message, but we're all like, all right, cool. It's almost over, you know, but he wasn't almost over. In fact, he, sometimes he wasn't even a third of the way done. And so, um, Paul might be using it in this sense. He might be saying, I'm coming to my final point in a sub point sort of way. In a, um, in other words, he's saying before I transition on to something else I want to talk about, here's the conclusion of the first thing I'm talking about. But probably more, um, probably it's more correct to say that Paul is just using this word to transition to the next idea. All right, and so um, there's more to come. This is not the end for Paul, and nor was Paul like starting to wrap it up and then added more. This is just a transitional word. And Paul says in uh, chapter three, verse one: "Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again." And this is a reminder that Paul has already said this. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 18, he's used the same type of language. Rejoice in the Lord. You should be glad and rejoice with me, he says there. And so um, 
Joy is a theme in this passage of Scripture, in this book of the Bible, a recurring theme. But what does it mean? What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? And the answer is, it means to find your joy in Christ and all that He has done for us. Rejoicing in the Lord means finding your joy in Christ and all that He has done for us. And joy means more than just your feeling of goodwill, your feeling of good emotion. It does mean that, but it means more than that. In addition to your feeling of goodwill, it means your pride is in Christ, your identity is in Christ. Paul is saying, strip away from your life all of the things that are important to you about who you are, and instead, just focus on who you are in Christ. That's really what Paul is getting at when he says, rejoice in the Lord in this passage. And as I think you'll see that come clear as we walk through these um, phrases and clauses together. And so this is a recurring book or a recurring theme in the book of Philippians. And it's a recurring theme because the church in Philippi was a very active church. The church in Philippi was great. I mean, they sent a man to help Paul when he was in prison. With that man, they sent money to help him. These people were really active. And and Paul in chapter 1 describes how even though they were being persecuted for their faith, they were actively you know, being public about their faith in Christ and witnessing for him. The church at Philippi was doing great things. And that's good. That's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Paul commends them constantly throughout the letter. But people who are active are sometimes actually motivated by the activity and find their reward in the activity. In other words, people who accomplish a lot in some cases do so because they like being noticed for accomplishing a lot and they feel good by accomplishing a lot. And the tendency or the um, temptation, you might say, for someone who's very active and very motivated by getting things done and being active is to glory, to find your satisfaction, to find your self-worth in the things you accomplish. And that's lethal for Christians. Because if you put your confidence and your glory and your self-worth in the things you accomplish, one, you'll probably find someone in your life who's accomplished more, okay? And that's not so great for your self-esteem anymore. But further, doing things for yourself in, in, in self-motivated ways is the exact opposite of the gospel, all right? And so I'll, I'll, I'll come back to this in a moment. But this is why Paul is stressing in this letter, yes, he's very thankful for the Philippians and what they've done. And he feels a, a great feeling about this church he says, you know, that you are the evidence that my labor is not in vain in chapter 2. And so Paul has very good things to say about this church, and he has very good feelings toward them. But he has concerns, and his concern is, because of all the great things you've done, you might be tempted to start putting your confidence there instead of in Christ. And so this is what he's getting at when he says, and this is why he keeps repeating, rejoice in the Lord. Now, we should also note in chapter 3, verse 1, that rejoice in the Lord is a command, We are commanded to rejoice in the Lord. But not all commands are harsh. Not all commands are like, stop doing that and start doing this. Okay. In fact, commands can be quite encouraging, such as the command when we tell somebody to cheer up. You've done this. Cheer up. That's a command, right, by form. But you mean it in an encouraging way. And this is how Paul is, too. He is commanding us to rejoice in the Lord, and he has theological reasons for doing so. But he's not trying to impose a burden upon us by commanding us this. He's trying to encourage us, and he's trying to tell us, to borrow from the the theme statement I've created for this series, he's trying to tell us, here's a better brand of happiness than being satisfied with your accomplishments. 
Find your joy in the Lord. And so there is an, an encouraging tone to this uh, command, rejoice in the Lord, but, there's, but it's more meaningful than just be happy or be encouraged. And so rejoicing in the Lord, as I said, means to get your joy, your confidence, your meaning in life from your relationship with Jesus Christ. The uh, theological term for this, the theological um, name for this is your union with Christ. Because of who you are in Christ, find joy in that is what Paul is saying. And this is so important to Paul that he repeats it and he points out that he repeats it in verse 1. He says, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. Paul is here acknowledging, you know I've already said this, right? You've, you've, you've caught my theme of joy already, and he's like saying, it's not difficult for me to repeat this to you. And then he adds this in, at the end of verse 1, and it is a safeguard for you. And that's the point. Paul keeps repeating himself here because he sees this as being very, very important for the faith of the Philippian people. And you know, and I know that sometimes we repeat things that we find important, especially if we fear the consequences, the danger of somebody doing something else. We might say to, you know, we might say to somebody, drive carefully, like as if people don't already try to drive carefully. We're not trying to give them a command to do something different as much as we are trying to express our concern about the importance of that. And this is what Paul's doing here too. And so when he acknowledges writing this again, he's saying, I'm doing it for a purpose, and it's to safeguard your faith. Paul sees this as a way of protecting them as a church, protecting them in Christ. And what exactly does it mean when he says it's a safeguard for you? Well, I think what he's coming back to in another way is the problems he's already addressed in the church. He sees rejoicing in the Lord as a safeguard against the issues he's concerned about in the church. In other words, it will protect you from selfish ambition and vainglory. That was part of chapter 2, right? Do nothing out of these things, Paul says. It will protect you from the lack of humility that is contrasted with Christ and his humility. It will protect you from arguing and complaining, which he also talked about in chapter 2. This is what Paul means. When he's saying rejoicing in the Lord is a safeguard, he's saying it'll protect you from all of these things, selfish ambition, vain conceit, lack of humility, arguing and complaining. Because see, if your joy is in Christ and you find your worth in him, your identity in him, if he's the most important thing to you, then what position you occupy in the church leadership won't be so important to you. Because you know you're accepted and loved in Christ. And so it doesn't matter if you're an elder or a deacon or a deaconess or a Sunday school teacher. It won't matter if you have that position and people look up to that position. Because you already have all the position you need in Jesus Christ. And rejoicing in the Lord, finding your joy in Him, will protect you also from um, desiring to get enough credit. All right, This was a problem in the church too. When Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or, or uh, vain conceit, these are people who wanted credit for things. They were doing all this great activity and they wanted to be known for it and seen for it and rewarded for it. And Paul is saying, rejoicing in the Lord can protect you from that temptation. Also, Paul has commanded them to put others' interests above themselves. That was, that was a key theme of chapter 2. He says, model Jesus who put our interests above uh, or put, his put our interests above himself, um, he's saying we should do this as Christians as well. And rejoicing in the Lord will help us do that. It will help us to uh, protect against the very um, normal tendency that we all have to focus on our own interests instead of others. 
And so this is what Paul is getting at in verse 1. It's why he goes to great pains to say, I'm repeating this, I know, but it's important to rejoice in the Lord. Now, beginning in verses 2 and 3, Paul talks about um, some specifics about how rejoicing in the Lord can protect them in a new, in, it's not in a new way, but it's, it's a new topic. So rejoicing in the Lord has been a key theme. Paul sees it as protecting them against certain sins, but now he wants to move on to a new threat to the church. And that's discussed in verses 2 and 3, uh, where we read these words. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. In these verses, particularly verses 2 and 3, Paul talks about how rejoicing in the Lord can protect this church from false doctrine, a particular type of false doctrine. It's a Jewish type of false doctrine. And Paul says rejoicing in the Lord can protect you from this. And he begins with the words, watch out, in verse 2. And the NIV only translates this phrase, watch out, once, but it actually recurs every single time in, in verse 3. So it could be translated, watch out for those dogs, watch out for those evildoers, watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. And grammatically, it's unnecessary to repeat it, but rhetorically, it, it gives emphasis to the idea of being on guard against this. And that's what be, to watch out means. It means to be on guard against these things. Now, you understand that in verse 2, um, the dogs, the evildoers, and the mutilators of the flesh are not three separate types of people. They're one person. Paul is using three, not one person, but one group of persons, okay? Paul is using three ways of describing, in a negative way, one threat that he sees to the church. And so let's get into these descriptors, and um, we'll see what, uh, what Paul is actually concerned about. First, he says, believers must be on guard against the false teaching that substitutes anything for Christ. That's kind of the overarching banner here. And these uh, three phrases, dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh, are very harsh ways of describing one group of people. First, Paul calls them dogs. And again, we have to um, think about this in the world in which Paul lived. Um, dogs are a positive thing for most of us. Um, in, the, in our American culture because we have domesticated animals and it's hard not to like dogs. Some people don't like cats, but I think very fewer, fewer people dislike dogs. Dogs are friendly. They do good things for people. People in Paul's world didn't think that way of dogs. They focused on the things that are still true of dogs. Dogs are nasty animals. All right, As loving and as kind and as so forth as they are, you know, they... Um, they take things into their mouths that are really gross, all right? And so in Paul's culture, that was more of a focus. And dogs, of course, were more like wild animals. And they were highly disliked in Paul's world. In fact, um, in, in, in Jewish um, culture, which Paul was part of for most of his life, or much of his life, calling someone, was a, do calling someone a dog was a severe insult. And not in the way that kids do it when they say somebody who's unattractive is a dog. That's not what is meant at all. It's calling somebody a nasty human being. It's, it's reducing them on the level of uh, hierarchy. Some Jewish people called Gentiles dogs to express their low opinion of non-Jews. And guess what? Jesus did this a couple times, not directly, but indirectly. Like when he said to the, the, the Gentile woman who wanted him to do a miracle, 
when he said, um, it's not right to give the children's bread to the dogs, he wasn't calling her a dog directly, but he was indirectly using this idea that Gentiles are dogs, okay? And that was not a kind thing to say and not a loving thing to say. Jesus had a purpose for it, which I won't get into. But um, just to, this is just to illustrate that Jewish people had this habit of referring to Gentiles as dogs. Now Paul turns the tables and he takes what is a high insult in Judaism applied to Gentiles and he turns the tables and says, no, these Jewish false teachers, they're the real dogs. And it's because he sees them as polluting the gospel of Jesus Christ with their false teaching. And so he uses an insulting term to describe them. They want to impose these people, the ceremonies and rituals of Judaism on Christians. They affirm the, the, the faith of these Gentiles in Christ and believe them to be brothers, but they also say you need to do these other things in order to really be a full Christian. And Paul's saying, no, that's, that's a pollution. That's, that's dangerous doctrine. So that's why Paul calls them dogs. Secondly, he calls them evildoers. Verse 2, he says, watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those evildoers. And it seems like Paul is focusing here on the doers part. Yes, Paul is describing their teaching as evil. But by calling them evildoers, he's probably focusing on their activity. They work very hard at spreading what is, according to an understanding of the Christian faith, false doctrine. They're very active in doing it. And you need to understand that Paul, of course, was a trailblazer. He was a pioneer. He went to places where Christ had never been heard of. These gospel, or I should say, these Gentile communities, these Gentile cities. He went there preaching Jesus Christ and gathering the converts to Christ and making sure that they were baptized and organized into local churches. And then in almost every case, shortly after Paul would leave to start another church, these people would show up. All right, they're called Judaizers. And these are people who said, I'm a Christian, my faith is in Jesus, but all of us who follow Jesus need to follow the Old Testament law too. And they would show up and start saying, you Gentile guys need to get circumcised and you need to start um, watching what you eat and stop eating these non-kosher foods. And so they would try to take the, um, the believers that Paul had re- reached and organized into churches and then they would try to make, make them into good Jewish people. All right, and so this is why Paul is so strong in his condemnation of them. And they were so active in doing this and moving into one city uh, after another that Paul had started a church in. This is why Paul is focusing on them as evildoers. Finally, he calls them mutilators of the flesh. And this is the phrase that gives us the most insight into who he's talking about. Before he said this, we couldn't be sure. Now we can be sure. And the idea of them being mutilators of the flesh refers to circumcision. Now, this is a delicate topic for me to talk about, of course, because circumcision involves the removing of the flesh of a part of a man's body that only a man has. And that's all I'm going to say about that, okay? But Paul is saying what they're doing by going to Gentiles and saying you need to be circumcised in this way is, one, it's injuring the body of these men in a very sensitive place, And two, it's unnecessary. Circumcision had meaning and it had importance in Jewish world and in Jewish culture. Because baby boys who were circumcised were were being given a sign of the covenant. But Christ has come and he's erased the need for all of those signs and symbols. 
And so by now coming along to Gentile converts and saying, you know, to, be a really, to really be a good Christian, guys, you need to go get circumcised, was not only unnecessary, but it was adding a work to what Jesus had done. All right, and so there's this, there's this grace and this works tension that comes from the things the Judaizers were trying to do. And we'll, that'll come clear as we continue going forward. And so Paul is concerned about the church at Philippi. He's concerned that this false doctrine, which had infected all these other churches he had started, would come and infect this church too. And maybe it already was. I don't know if this was um, Paul trying to prevent it from happening or if he had heard rumblings of it happening, but um, he's very concerned that um, they will stop rejoicing in the Lord and finding their satisfaction in him and start focusing on pleasing these Judaizers. And so Paul says, you need to guard against this false teaching. Watch out for it, according to verse 2. Now, verse 3 goes into why we need to watch out for it. And he's saying there, we must guard against false teaching because it wants to swindle us out of Christ. The only thing of true value that we have. This false teaching of the Judaizers, that in order to be a good Christian, you must follow the Old Testament ceremonial law is actually a bait and switch. It's saying this will enhance your Christianity. This will help your walk with God. And Paul's saying, no, it's trading grace for works. And it's going to swindle you out of the only thing of true value that we have, which is Jesus Christ. In verse 3, Paul goes on to talk about how we have all of these things in Christ already. Verse 3 says, for it is we who are the circumcision. We who Serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is saying in Christ we already have everything we need. And so to try to add to all that Christ is for us and all that Christ has done for us, these Jewish works actually detracts from Jesus because it puts our confidence elsewhere. In Christ we are marked as God's chosen people. Remember, that was what the rite of circumcision was about. Every Jewish boy who was circumcised on the day, eighth day after his birth was put under the covenant. He now bore for the rest of his life in a way that could not be erased the mark of his belonging to the covenant people of God. But we already have that in Christ. Other scriptures say when you got saved, you were marked with a seal, which is the coming Holy Spirit. And so you don't need any physical markers to say you belong to Jesus. You already have the identity you need in Christ. We are the true circumcision, Paul is saying in verse 3. He goes on to say we serve Christ by the Spirit, and this refers to our worship. I think I feel like in our language, in describing our faith, we make a distinction between worship and service. Okay, worship is words that I give to God, either singing or praising Him or praying, and service is stuff I do for God. All right, and there's some value in that distinction, but the truth is, in Scripture, they're the same. The, the work that I do for God can be very much an act of worship, as is the words I give to God in my songs and my prayers and so on. All of these are acts of worship. And so when Paul says we serve God by the Spirit, he's not so much talking about the things we do as he is about the totality of our Christian life. And he's saying anything we do to God, whether it's prayer or praise or singing or leading someone to Christ or discipling someone or baptizing them, all of these things are active service to God and they're all done through the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us the desire to serve the Lord in these ways. 
And so we don't need a list of rules to try to follow in order to be worshipful to God. We have the Spirit compelling us to do what God has said. Third, in verse 3, he says that uh, we, in Christ, we are excited about him and his accomplishments. That's what he's saying when he says, who glory in Christ Jesus, who boast in Christ Jesus. What are we proud about as Christians? We're proud about what God has done for us in Christ and nothing else, if we understand the New Testament and what it teaches. Paul is constantly coming back to this. The Christian's proper boast is in Jesus. The only thing I have to brag about is that despite the fact that I was a guilty sinner who deserved the punishment of God, Jesus died for me. And despite the fact that I have very little in terms of good works when compared to my sins, God looks at me as perfectly righteous, not because of my good works, but because the perfect works of Christ have been applied to me. And the demerits of my sins have been erased by his blood and his sacrifice on the cross. And Paul says everything that we feel good about in our faith comes from Jesus Christ and what he did, not what we have done. And fourthly, he says in verse 3, we put no confidence in the flesh. In Christ, we stop taking pride in our human accomplishments. That's what he's saying about, that's what he means when he says, who put no confidence in the flesh. If someone comes to me and says, or any of us as Christians, and says to us, why do you think that God loves you? I don't say, well, you know, I haven't missed church in years, and I read the Bible daily, and I pray, you know, regularly, and I do all of these great works. That's not what we say as Christians. We might, in our hearts, have some attachment of pride to that, and that needs to be addressed. That's what Paul's addressing here. But that's not what we say. When we say, why does God love you? It's not because of anything that I've done. It's because of his mercy and his grace in Christ alone. This is where we get our pride, if we have any pride. This is where we get our joy, if we have any joy. It's in all that God has done for us and given to us in the person of Christ. And Paul's concern is that if we follow the, if, if the Philippians follow the false teaching of these Judaizers, they're going to stop taking pride in Jesus and all that he's done. They're going to stop saying, God loves me because Jesus died for me and gave his life for me and applied all of his merits to me. They're going to stop saying that and start saying, well, I got circumcised and I you know, have been really kosher with my diet and all of these other things. That's what Paul's worried about. He's worried about the shift from confidence in Christ to confidence in the flesh. That's what he means by this confidence in the flesh. Now in verses 4 through 7, Paul explains how he knows that rejoicing in Christ is better than having confidence in human accomplishments. Verses 1 through 3 have tried to lay out the contrast. He's saying rejoice in the Lord because it's way better than trying to accomplish things religiously on your own. But how does Paul know this to be the case? Well, in verses 4 through 7, he's going to tell us. He's saying, I've lived that life. I've tried the other way. All right? And here's how he does it. He lists seven advantages in verses 4 through 7 that he possessed if Jewish pedigree and performance are important. In verses 4 through 7, Paul is going to describe the, his own um, pedigree and performance as a Jewish man before he came to Christ. And he's going to say, if that's important, I've already lived that life. I have plenty of experience with it, and let me just tell you what it's like. And so he lists these seven advantages that he possessed. Three, the first four describe his Jewish pedigree. This is just stuff that 
was conferred upon him by birth. And the last three describe his Jewish performance. All right, so let's look at these together in verses uh, 4 through 7. Verse 4 says, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if, any, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. In these verses, Paul lays out his resume, you might say, for someone who could have confidence in the flesh. For someone who checks off all the boxes, or at least did, that these Judaizers would come and try to impose on the Philippian church. Paul says, I've done everything. And he lists out what those things are. Let's look at them um, quickly together. Verses, uh, verse 4 basically describes in general why Paul has more confidence than most anyone else or anyone else could have. And Verse 5 begins to say specifically why. And again, he begins with these uh, four aspects of his pedigree. Paul says he has an impeccable Jewish background by birth in uh, verse 5. First in verse 5, he says, hey, if circumcision is important, guess what? I was circumcised. And it happened to me on the eighth day after my birth, just like the Old Testament law says. Now, for the, the uh, Gentile believers in Philippi to get circumcised at this point in their life would be something that the Jewish people thought would be acceptable, but they still wouldn't be on the same tier as people who were circumcised into Judaism on the eighth day after their birth. Gentiles who get circumcised later are better than uncircumcised Gentiles, but they're not as good as people who received it as a rite of birth. And so Paul is saying, look, Go ahead and get circumcised, but I'll still be better because I was circumcised at birth on the eighth day. Secondly, he says in uh, verse 5, of the people of Israel. All right, And this is saying that Paul came out of this nation, that he has the ethnic background, that he belongs to the Hebrew race by blood. Third, he says in verse 5, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says, not only do I know that I'm Jewish, but I can actually trace it to the very tribe that I came from. And that tribe of Benjamin wasn't one of the mightier tribes like Judah was, but there was, they have some good things about them. For instance, the very first king, Saul, who, by the way, this guy Paul was named after. He was the first king. He was a Benjamite. Okay, and so this is something that the tribe of Benjamin and people who came from that tribe were proud about. Also, the tribe of Benjamin tended to stick with the people of Judah when the northern um, kingdom went astray from God. And so Paul is saying, I'm Jewish through and through, and I can even trace it to my tribe of Benjamin, which ain't a bad tribe to be from if you're Jewish. He goes on in verse 5 and says this, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, he's already said, I'm of the people of Judah, so, or of, uh, of Israel, I mean. So why is he saying a Hebrew of Hebrews? The point here is that he's pure-blooded. You understand that some people in Jewish history had a Jewish father and a Gentile mother. Because they had a Jewish father especially if their Jewish father was observant, they were considered Jewish men. But someone who had both a Jewish father and a Jewish mother, that removes all the ambiguity about your true Jewishness. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, I had a Jewish father and a Jewish mother. And if we got him to go into this in more detail, he might be able to say, yeah, I can trace back for many generations. Jewish people on both sides of my family. He's, what he's saying here is I'm purebred. But he goes on and says this, in regard to the law of Pharisee. Now here's where Paul moves from 
his pedigree to his performance. In terms of pedigree, Paul checked off all the boxes that you would want in a Jewish man. Now he says in terms of performance, he did well as well. In verse 5, when he says, in regard to the law of Pharisee, he is saying there are different sects of Judaism. There are different interpretations of how to be a good Jewish person. One of these is called the Sadducees. They tended to be the priests, and they were liberal in a lot of ways. They didn't follow the Old Testament law very carefully. The Pharisees were a much smaller group of people, but they were powerful because they controlled the synagogue system in Israel. And they were very zealous about teaching the law and trying to practice the law. They were legalists, and they thought that was a good thing. They were very careful about keeping the law of God. They were literalists in the way they handled the word. And they took great pride in that. And Paul's saying, I was one of them. I was a Pharisee. And then he says in verse 6, as for zeal, persecuting the church. And Paul is saying, I'm not just like a Pharisee, like some people are baptized Catholic and they identify as Catholic for the rest of their life, but they never actually practice Catholicism. Paul's not saying that. He's saying, I took pride in my Judaism. I took pride in being a Pharisee. It was important to me. And I was zealous about it. I cared about it. I passionately and deeply was committed to the Pharisaic tradition of Judaism. And his proof of this was that he persecuted the church. That's what he says in verse 6. As for zeal, persecuting the church, he's saying, how important was my Judaism to me? It was so important that I went to other towns to put people to death for trying to pollute what I thought was important in Judaism. That's pretty zealous. That's pretty important. Finally, he says, I was obedient to the law. At the end of verse 6, he says, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. You understand that the word righteousness describes conformity to a standard. The standard is God's law. A person is righteous, especially in in the Old Testament, um, relative to how well they live up to that law. How many of God's laws have you not broken? That's how righteous you are in a legalistic sense. And Paul says, if you looked at my righteousness as a Pharisaic Jewish man, you would find me to be flawless. That is, no one could come along and watch my life and say, well, you forgot to tithe on that. Or you ate pork on this day. Paul is saying there were no inconsistencies in the way that I practiced Judaism. And so in the next session, we'll come to the, the paragraph or the subparagraph in this where Paul talks about how that no longer is important to him because he now is rejoicing in the Lord. But the point of this is to tell us and to help us to guard against the very real and very human tendency to not find our joy and our identity and our satisfaction in Christ and instead to turn to our own performance or our own pedigree. Paul's saying this is destructive to the faith. And so a better brand of happiness, rejoicing in the Lord, comes when we make Jesus Christ and all he is and all he's done for us. The only thing that's important to us, the only thing that is a source of pride and joy to us, that is a better brand of happiness.